0: Good morning. Today's word comes from Titus 2, 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, But showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for this day. We thank you for this particular appointed time that you have set aside for us to come and meet with you, Lord God. I pray, Father God, that you would just be with each of us, that you would open our our minds, our ears, and most importantly, our hearts, Father God, that, that your word, can come and edify us, teach us, strengthen us, Lord God, and be able to show your love. Father God, I I pray for the man of God that will bring your word. I pray that you make him clear and concise, Father God, that he would relay your word as you have set it upon his heart. We give you praise, we give you much glory, in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen, you can be seated. Well, good morning, my name is Tim, I'm the pastor here, if you're new, welcome. Uh, if you're not new, welcome back. If you could tell, maybe there was a little bit more energy in the room this morning. And I think part of that is the light of Jesus shining into the darkness. But I think part of it is the actual lights shining into this darkness. Our lights are at work now. If you're new, uh, they haven't worked for like three years. Um, I think three months, but it feels like three years, and it just took a while to get them fixed and work with the school and work with the lighting company, uh, but they are fixed, praise be to God, and I can see your faces, and you look good, and I can see if you're not paying attention, so I'll just leave that with you as well, but um, excited that our lights are working. Last week, we took a break from our series in Titus, and we talked about the tragedies in our nation, in our world, and our Response. I won't recap that, but you can listen on the website, iTunes. Um, I think it's important for us as the church of Jesus Christ to be just that, especially in times of crisis. And we're going to continue to talk about this. Uh, we're going to continue to pray about it. We're going to continue to unite around Jesus, his mission, his compassion for people. We're going to see people that way, respond to people that way. We are going to be different, amen, as the church of Jesus Christ in this world. And just this week, uh, we have more opportunity to talk about this. Unfortunately, in France, this week, 80-plus people were killed. Uh, just this morning, some of you may not have even seen this yet, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, seven officers were shot. Um, details are still coming out, but they think three of them are dead. And um, crisis And chaos continues in our nation, even this morning. And so as we gather this morning, I hope that you feel some urgency. As the body of Christ, I hope you feel uh, an urgency to pray, to sing, to, to speak about the risen King Jesus, that we don't gather this morning symbolically. We don't just put on nice clothes and and say, hey, how you doing, and just go through the motions. Like, we gather today because we meet with the risen King Jesus, and we desperately need him. Our country desperately needs him. Our world desperately needs him. And so I want to just stop for a minute before we get into Titus and just pray. I'd ask that you pray with me pray for the families that are affected by even this morning in louisiana pray for the multitude of families in france um, and the other places let's pray would you do that with me father in heaven i thank you for this morning i do thank you that you have brought your people here together this morning for a reason that it's not to go through the motions to look at a screen or to look at me and see me perform and consume all of that. God, it's, it's to connect with you. It's to connect with others that it's a special time where your spirit does come and that we are in your presence. God, I pray that we would yearn for that that we would soak that in, that we would saturate our minds and our hearts in this moment, in the midst of these tragedies, with your word. God, that you would load our minds with thoughts of God, that we would leave here with hope in the midst of tragedy, we would leave here with healing in the midst of suffering, and we would practice that, and we would preach that right here in downtown Phoenix in the heart of our city, and that would bleed out into other places. God, I pray that you would do that now in the hearts and minds of these men and women. And God, I do pray um, that you would bring healing. God, you say in your word, Second Kings, that you hear our prayers, that you see our tears, and that you bring healing. Second Corinthians, that you're the God of all comfort. You created comfort, that you know how to supernaturally, in this moment, comfort the families of the police officers this morning comfort the families of the people in France, uh, the people in other places in the last couple weeks, that you can bring comfort, that you bring it in the midst of their affliction, uh, that you bring it through us, that you give us comfort from our suffering so that we can bring that same comfort to others. That God, That's a promise from your word. And so I pray in this moment that you would fulfill that promise for so many that are suffering, and I pray that you would come Jesus, that you would return, that you would wipe away every tear, that you would take away pain, that you would take away loss, and that we would hope for that day and live for that day and proclaim until that day comes the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is able, even in the midst of tragedy, to restore, redeem, and renew all people. And so, God, that is our hope. May we continue with that hope as we look at your word in Titus, and may you speak to us and move in and through us It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. All right, well, I encourage you to continue to pray as details come out, to continue to respond in compassion as the people of Jesus Christ, and we'll continue to do that as a church. Uh, As we get back to Titus, we're in chapter 2. Uh, Because of our break, last week we missed the second part of chapter 1, and we might come back to it. I'm trying to stay with our church calendar and get us ready for the fall, and so so it's kind of a tight fit, and so we might come back to the second half of Titus chapter 1. I'm going to see if I can get creative and maybe do like a midweek study or something on video that we send out to you guys, and so stay tuned for that. But just to give you a brief recap of where we are, chapter 1 of Titus addresses the integrity and influence of leaders And so the Apostle Paul, if you remember from our first week, he's put Titus there to help lead these churches in an island called Crete. So these are new churches. Cats talked about earlier. We're a new church, and that's similar to what they're experiencing in the island of Crete. And what Paul is encouraging Titus to do in the second half of chapter 1, you can go and read about it, is raise up elders. Uh, those are pastors, overseers, elders, all synonymous, all this similar task of caring for and leading and serving other people in these churches. And so Paul is going to give Titus some qualifications, some characteristics of, hey, look for this in these type of guys. And what's interesting is you, is you go back and read that and you can do that later on your own, Titus 1, 5 through 16, is you see that in that passage, you see it in 1 Timothy 3 as well, is that you don't see a lot about talent And you don't see a lot about charisma. You do see a lot about integrity. And so chapter 1, if I can summarize it, it's about integrity and influence, both good and bad. And so you see these elders in chapter 1 that are called to teach, sound doctrine, to plant that in the hearts and minds of people. But you also see the elders are called to rebuke, that there's people speaking in opposition to the word of God. And he goes on to talk about those people in the island of Crete, that they're deceivers, that they're false teachers, that they're empty talkers, and there's still influence in the midst of that. That at one point in the end of chapter uh, 1, it says that they are upsetting whole families because of what they're teaching. And so that's the scenario in chapter 1. We're talking about integrity and influence, both good and bad. And in chapter 2, as we get into it today, he transitions to Titus, and he says, but as for you... And so in the second half of chapter 1, he's talking about these deceivers, empty talkers, uh, false teachers. And he's going to say, but as for you, Titus, you're going to be different. The people you teach and lead are going to be different as well. And so chapter 1, integrity and influence. Today in chapter 2, we're going to see belief and behavior. That's the big idea, belief and behavior and the link between the two. As he, as he gets into it, he says, but as for you, he's talking to Titus, he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Those are two important words. Sound literally means healthy, and so think pure, think clean. Doctrine, that word doctrine means the truth, the teaching of God as revealed in the scriptures, as revealed in the good news of Jesus Christ. But notice this, it's not just teach sound doctrine, pure truth about God. While that's really, really important, Paul says, look at the verse, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so Paul is telling Titus to, to teach ways of thinking, living, and relating to others that correspond with the truth of God's word. He's linking up belief and behavior. And I was thinking about it. This is so relevant for our world today. It's so relevant for what we just talked about last Sunday, for what we just prayed about. Because especially in times of crisis, people are asking of the church, do they really believe this stuff? People are asking of you and I, maybe we're asking of ourselves, do we really believe this stuff, especially in times of tragedy? Like, do we really believe that there's joy in suffering? Do we really believe that there's purpose in pain? Do we really believe that there's hope beyond this world? Because if we believe it, then we'll behave differently. We'll think, we'll act, we'll relate to one another differently. That's the question you and I should be asking. That's the question our culture is asking of us. And oftentimes what we see is that Christians can be tempted to complain. Maybe you've done this. To complain about our society. Where is it going? I mean, all the selfies, all the Pokemon Go. I mean, what is happening in our culture today? I mean, nobody holds to beliefs of the Bible like we used to. Nobody Holds to moral values like we used to. I mean, like what is happening in our culture? And listen, if that's you, if you're tempted to complain, and we all are, we need to realize that if we want our beliefs to be more contagious, that our um, if our beliefs are going to be more contagious, that our behavior must be more convincing. you see that? if our beliefs are going to be more contagious, if people are going to start believing the Bible and and trusting what it says and going to it and reading to it and listening to us talk about it, if that's going to spread and be more contagious, then our behavior has to be more convincing. And honestly, a lot of the times it's not. And even in times of crisis we talked about last week, a lot of times we get lumped into the same narrative, the same agenda, the same side picking that everybody else does. And that's not the way it's supposed to be for you and I if you profess the name of Jesus Christ. There is a direct link between our belief and our behavior. And Paul is going to lay out what that looks like, what accords with sound doctrine. And he's going to do that for five groups of people. Uh, he's going to do that for older men, younger men, older women, younger women, and bond servants. And I actually did some research leading up to today and, and just found a biblical cutoff age And so you can know, like, if you're older or younger. I was just kidding. I'm not going to go there. Uh, I'll let you decide what that age is, and if you fall into the older camp or the younger camp, and you can go uh, there accordingly. Some of you are thinking, like, is this really in the Bible? Like, is there an age? No, there's not. Uh, Verse 2, Paul addresses older men. So you know who you are, older men? They should be, look at the verse... Sober-minded, dignified, that word means that they're worthy of respect, that people are drawn to them. Self-control, that's interesting. That word or that phrase is mentioned three times in this passage across groups of people. We'll get into it more in a minute. And he talks about faith, love, and steadfastness. You typically see that grouping. Maybe some of you have you've read the Bible. You typically see that grouping of faith and love accompanied by hope. But what's interesting in this passage, as Paul addresses older men, he replaces that word hope with steadfastness or endurance. And this is key because many older men struggle with steadfastness, don't they? I mean, as we get older in life, we wonder, like, does life really matter anymore? Do I have any value anymore? And sometimes what older men do is they coast. They say things like, I've put in my time, Right? Or I'm going to hand it off to the younger guys and give them a turn. Have you heard this? I have, right? And so when they say things like that. And sometimes they, they say things about success and money. Like, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to go, uh, I already have enough money. I'm good, right? I already have enough success. I've already accomplished everything. I'm just going to, going to coast. And then some other people, some other older men say things like, I give up, right? I've already made enough or I've already made the money I'm going to make. I'm not going to make any more. It's not going to get any better than this. And so they can be tempted to coast. There's a a mentor of mine in our city. He's a pastor, has been for 30 years in the same church. And as as we talked recently, he just switched roles. So he was the lead pastor. He switched to another role. Another guy succeeded him as the lead pastor. And as I talked to this guy, he's still as passionate as ever about what God has called him to and the influence he can have in the lives of people. And he told me, he said, Tim, I'm still in the game. I'm just playing a different position. Isn't that great? That later in his life, he's not coasting. He's not collecting shells. No, he's saying, my role may change, but my mission does not. Instead, now, and he does this, he invests in younger leaders and wants to do that purposefully to advance the mission of God. And he has what Paul talks about. He's dignified. I'm drawn to him. As a younger leader, he's worthy of my respect. I've seen the way he loves his wife. I've seen the way he loves his family. I'm seeing the way now in his later years he's humble enough to step down and change his role and allow a a younger guy to come in and lead, still submit to that guy, and still lead powerfully in his own right. And I'm getting to see all that, and I'm drawn to that. And I want to know, how do you do that? How do you lead a church for 30 years faithfully? How do you lead your family faithfully all the way until the very end, even if your role changes? That's the kind of older men That we should aspire to. If you're in here and you are older, that's the kind of man you want to be now. If you're here and you're younger, that's the kind of man you want to have a a vision for later on in your life. The devotional that we're going through. We have these available in the back that you can purchase. But the author references Caleb as an example of this in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar, Caleb, uh, much later in his life, in his 80s, helps lead the Israelites into the land of Israel. Canaan, the land promised them by God, and he's in his 80s, has been wandering the wilderness with the rest of the Israelites, and they have this land, this land of Canaan that has been promised to them by God, he's in his 80s, he's one of the last remaining guys from this group that heard these promises, and yet, in this moment, he shines, it's his moment, he goes into the land, he helps overtake the enemy, and they obtain the land of Canaan, That's Caleb. His his moment was in his later years, not his younger years. He was wandering in the wilderness in his younger years. And later in life, God used him in a mighty way. And listen, men, I'm sure there were times of regret. I'm sure there were times where Caleb doubted. Like, maybe it's time to hang up the cleats, right? But he didn't. Later in life, God used him. He stepped forward. God used him in a mighty way, and that's the call upon your life. John Piper, an older pastor, says it this way. He says, as long as you can walk, talk, and sing, do something for the king. He says, if you believe in hell, that people are actually going to perish and suffer forever, how can you fall into coasting? He says, the only way that happens is if you close your eyes. Men, don't close your eyes, especially with what's going on in our world. Older or younger, men or women, don't close your eyes. We talked about this last week. You need to see it. You need to see people. You need to see people's faces. You need to see the harsh realities of sin and the much-needed glory of God to reign in our lives. You need to see it. Don't close your eyes. Don't coast. Listen, listen. As you get older, does that mean you can't buy a boat? No. Buy your boat, okay? Buy your boat, but sometimes take some younger guys out and teach them how to fish, if you know how to fish. Talk about scripture, talk about your successes, talk about your failures, and let them lean into your life and learn from your experiences. Because, listen, I know as you get older, you've experienced a lot of pain, right? There's a lot of pain in our life. Can we agree on that? There's a lot of joy, but there's a lot of pain. That pain can do one or two things. It can harden you, or you can use it and allow God to use it to leverage to help others. So it can harden or it can help. As you get older, that you would use that to leverage it to help others, to invest into others. And so get the beach house, but use the beach house to host a leadership retreat for Phoenix Bible Church. Right? Right? Like, don't waste the end of your life. Redeem it for God's glory and use it in his mission, okay? Older men. And then he moves on to older women. Again, I'll let you decide what age is the cutoff for that. Uh, Older women, verse 3. Look at that verse. He says they should be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to, to too much wine, so don't medicate don't escape with alcohol or other substances. It's interesting that word for slanderers in the original language is diabolos or devil. So he's saying older women, don't be like the devil. Man, it's serious. We talk about a lot here that sometimes we elevate sins, certain sins that we don't like and bug us. And we, we kind of downplay our sins. And, and this is one of those sins, slander. That it's malicious gossip, that it's false accusations, similar to what the devil does. And he's saying to older women, to everybody, but specifically in this case, to older women, don't live like that. When you speak, speak life, not death. When you speak, allow your words and the heart behind your words be tools for God and his redemptive narrative and not tools for Satan because we all know that Satan can use our words. He can use the slander in our lives and he can manipulate it and he can orchestrate it and he can create division and barriers everywhere. And what Paul is saying is is don't do that. Older women, don't be marked by that. Let it be marked instead by teaching what is good. Verse four, training young women. And Paul begins to bring into light as he talks about these intergenerational people, older training younger. And listen, Paul could speak to this. At the beginning of this book, he talks about Titus being a true child in the common faith, that Paul had been some kind of mentor to Titus. He'd invested into Titus. So he has modeled this, and now he's charging Titus and these older women, you do the same, you invest in the younger generation. Older women, that goes for you. That you can take younger women aside and you can begin to share your life with them. You can teach them the word of God. Young women ask me all the time, who can I meet with? Is there somebody older, somebody with a little bit more experience that can come alongside me and kind of show me how to live my life as a single woman, as a young mom, as a, as a wife, And that happens all the time. And as I talk to our older women, they say, like, why don't any younger women want to meet with me? And they think they know everything. And listen, they don't. They're just nervous. And you need to be the older woman. You need to be the grown-up, okay, right, older women. And you need to start the conversation. Now, younger women, you need to take the onus as well and ask somebody to coffee, ask somebody to lunch, talk to somebody when you're at church. Like, scoot in the aisles. And rub shoulders with another older woman and do that on purpose. Like, they're not gonna be freaked out by that. If you go up to an older woman and say, hey, how can I learn from you? They're not gonna be disgusted, like, ooh, get away from me. <laughs> like, that's not gonna happen, right? They're gonna be overjoyed, especially the older women in our church. I know them. I know they're gonna wanna do that. And some of you are thinking, well, this is a, a younger church. How's it gonna happen? Listen, everybody's a little bit older than somebody, right? Like somebody's a little bit older than somebody else, men and women. So we don't have that excuse. Um, I think about my daughter. She has uh, a lady in our church who comes and teaches her the piano. Uh, She's up here on stage. Her name's Dana. And she comes over once a week to teach my daughter piano. And I, I love that. And she teaches her chords and she teaches her how to, you know, do the Stevie Wonder and you know, tilt her head and move her fingers. Like, she does all that. But she also just talks about life, right? She talks about her life. She talks about what she's doing. We go and watch her play at coffee shops. And my daughter just gazes in awe at this girl, Dana, in our church, who's, who's not what we would consider older, but she's older than my seven-year-old daughter, right? And she teaches and she invests and she trains up a younger Woman. and I love that and I want to see that embedded in the fabric of our church that older men are investing into younger men that older women are investing into younger women and that, that's when we have community groups that's when we have community groups that have different life stages that you go in there and you can maybe eat some food because they know how to cook better than you but you can also ask them about their life And you can also talk about this passage this week and be like, what does that look like? How do we achieve this? That's why we have, for women, we have uh, moms groups that meet once a month. That As you, as an older woman, that you would take time to live life with women and then teach women out of that. That if you were thinking, I will just teach, I will just give advice, but I'm never gonna be around, that's not gonna hold any weight. That you would find ways, moms group. Ladies' night, painting with a twist, community group, Sundays, coffee, lunches, that you would get around women, that you would live life with them, that you would begin to teach them and train them, as Paul calls us to. And then he says to train younger women, he moves on to younger women, to do what? Verse 5, look at that verse. He says, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so two of the most controversial things of our day are in that one verse, working at home, submissive to their husbands. And so we're going to talk about those. We've talked about these things before, but uh, we'll talk about them again today. The first one, and the first thing I want you to see about working at home, what does that mean? First of all, it doesn't say that she only works at home, right? It doesn't say that's the only thing she does. It says when she's working at home, live like this. And so the reality is, in that day, in a different culture, in a different context, and in our day, in a different culture, in a different context, that women, some of their time, a chunk of their time is working in the home, caring for the family, helping uh, serve and lead the family in that way. And it doesn't mean that you can't have a job outside the home. It just means that when you are at home, you're supposed to live like this. And how do we know that? Proverbs 31, we get a great Example of a woman who works outside the home. Listen to what it says. Proverbs 31, it's talking about this woman of God, and it says in verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. She's working outside the home. She's providing. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness, so she's working hard. Her children rise up and call her blessed, so she's not neglecting her children. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised." And so listen, if you are a mom who works outside the home and you felt guilty for that and condemned for that, that, that's not the heart of God. We see an example of a woman who works outside the home, but who's also caring for her children and her husband. And so what I would say to you, if you work outside the home, is it negatively affecting your life at home, your family at home? Is it taking priority over your home? Would your children be able to say what we see in Proverbs 31, that uh, the children call her blessed? Are they calling you blessed? Is your husband praising you for the way you care for the family and care for the home? Is that happening? And if it's not, if your job is your sole focus, and, and maybe it's because some things in your life, some things in your background, maybe your dad told you, like, listen, you've got to get the Ph.D., you gotta get a good job, you gotta do these things, you gotta prove your worth, and maybe somebody instilled that into you, maybe our culture instilled that into you, and so you're working, and it's not just because you like it, it's not just to provide, but you're doing that uh, because of some pressures in your life, you need to look at that honestly and see, has that taken utmost priority in my life, and is my family uh, reaping the consequences of that? So you need to ask those questions. You don't need to be convicted about your job, unless it's in that boat, unless it's becoming the priority over your home and your family is being neglected, right? If you do stay at home, if you're a stay-at-home mom, you need to know that your work at home is incredibly valuable. My kids, uh, my wife has has worked outside the home, she's worked inside the home, right now she's doing a little bit of both. My kids are gonna grow up to be the, the adults that they're gonna be because of my influence and the influence of my wife. Because of the times when she's reading a book and they're not listening, right? The times where she's picking up toys and they take the same toys and they throw them back on the ground. And as my wife comes alongside them during the day when I'm not at home and she teaches them, she trains them and shows them how to put up toys, how to listen when we read stories, how to look at Scripture, how to live life, they're going to take that with them for the rest of their life. And you hear that, don't you? Maybe some of you are in this boat. You, you grew up in a home where your mom wasn't around. Or you grew up in a home where it was, just, um, it was just talk about work and career and success. And you look back on those times, and maybe you didn't realize it even at the time, but it, it helped mold you and shape you positively or negatively. So women who, who stay at home, you need to know you're incredibly valuable in the mission of God. What you do matters. As you think about your day and all the little things you did, and you wonder, like, did I even really do anything today? Like, yes, what you do matters, and if you could get paid for that job, you should be paid like a million dollars. That's a tough job. It's incredibly valuable. And it doesn't mean the men aren't involved, it doesn't mean men don't take care of the kids. Men, we gotta stop saying we're babysitting our kids. Because a babysitter is someone you hire who's not the parent, right? <laughs> You're the parent. Help parent your kids. You're not babysitting your kids. You're not on daddy duty. This is your role as a father. Amen? Dads? Amen? Okay. So it's not all on the woman, but she plays a vital role, and so do we as men. Don't discount that in your life. So that's younger women, and then he proceeds to younger men. Verse 6. I love this. There's only one piece of instruction necessary. Look at the verse. He says, be self-controlled. I wonder why that is. For younger men, be self-controlled. We see that consistently through this passage. Be self-controlled, be self-controlled. But there's all these other things. The young men, they just need one. Be self-controlled. Because if you get that, Everything else will take care of itself. And I was thinking about that this week. I was at a, a frozen yogurt shop with my family. And my grandparents had come in, or my parents had come in, my kids' grandparents had come into town. And we have three kids. We have a 14-month-old month daughter. And we go into this Froyo shop, and we normally just give her a sample, right? Uh, as responsible parents should do. We give our daughter a sample. And, but with the grandparents in town, they gave her samples of everything, right? <laughs> And so they're giving her the, the vanilla, the chocolate, the berry blast. They're giving her it all and she has the same response to every one of those little sample cups of frozen yogurt, right? She's got her tongue hanging out and she's just like, "Num num. Num num. Yes, I'll take yeah, I'll take another." And she doesn't even know like the distinction between the flavors. She's just taking it all in. She looks upon this frozen yogurt shop in all of its glory. And all of its flavors, and she says, I will take it all. And she's got her tongue hanging out in the midst of it. And I literally thought about this as I was preparing this sermon, and I thought, that's young men. (laughs) That's young men, right? They're they're like babies at a frozen yogurt shop. (laughs) Right? Just think about it. Bear with me. They're, They're looking at the world and the lust of the world and the success of the world and the recognition of the world and they're looking at all of it, and they're just like, "Num num, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, just keep. I'll, I'll take more. I'll keep it coming, right?" But that's that's young men, and so Paul knows that, and so he says, "Be self-controlled." We see this in our lives. We see this in Scripture. We saw it a few weeks ago as we looked at the the life of Samson. Remember the life of Samson? There's a phrase over and over in the life of Samson that, that it would say. It would say, He did what was right in His own eyes. That He saw something He wanted, whatever flavor it was, and He took it. He did what was right in His own eyes. And some of you are thinking, Well, like, Tim, what's, what's the big deal? I mean, boys will be boys, right? I mean, boys will be impulsive. I mean, that's part of what makes us men. The big deal is there is devastation and destruction associated with that. You think about the life of Samson. How did it end for Samson? He lost his strength, his gift, his talent given to him by God was robbed from him because of his impulsive nature. He hurt other people in the process. He killed people out of anger and rage because he wasn't self-controlled. Proverbs talks about this a lot. It talks about that someone who is without self-control is like a city without walls. You can just picture that that when your walls are down, you don't have any self-discipline, you don't have any self-control in your life, that it's an open door for your flesh, for the enemy, to bring all the flavors and all the things of life and all the pleasures of life and all the lust and all the success. It's an open door to say, come and get me. And so Paul says, be self-controlled because it leads to destruction I read an article this week that was talking about some of the travesties in our world, some of the rapes on college campuses, and all the different things that are are happening in our world, and it talked about this, especially for men. I thought it was really interesting. It says, men drunk on anything, control, alcohol, ego, recognition, career, men drunk on anything can destroy everything. And so as, as young men in here, we have some young men in here, are there things in your life that you're not self-controlled with? Are there things, we talk a lot about grace, we talk a lot about freedom in Christ, and we definitely do that here, and we will always do that here, because uh, grace is risky, though. Uh, it's risky because people will say, well, I'll just do whatever I want. And some of you young men, you, you take hold of that, and you're saying, that's, that's my life. I've experienced the freedom of grace. Maybe you grew up legalistic, and now you've experienced the freedom of of grace, and you're like, well, now I'm just going to go do whatever I want. And so drinking, it's it's not a big deal to get uh, to drink. I can't get drunk. And we talk about in gray lines like what that actually means in gray spaces. Young men, have you gone too far? Have you gone towards licentiousness as you move away from legalism? Have you lost any self-control as you look at your life, at your lust, as your success, as your pleasure? Have you lost self-control in some of those areas? Are you becoming drunk on those things? Are they captivating your heart over and above Jesus, over and above your family, over and above your friends? Are they captivating your heart? Listen, that could be anything. That could be sports radio. Like, are you driving home? Are you... As you prepare to love your wife and lead your family, are you just taking in the, the daily news of the cardinals or are you meditating on the scriptures and praying and asking God, hey God, when I get home, I'm tired, and a bad day at work. When I get home, I need your strength, I need your self-discipline, I need your self-control, I need to be controlled by you And I need to come in, I need to get on the floor with my babies, I need to play with them, I need to help serve my wife, that this is when work really starts. Are you doing that? Or are you distracted? Are you escaping with sports, with lust, with success, with recognition, with always wanting to be noticed? Are you self-controlled? How do we get there? How do we overcome the self-indulgence of our world, and be self control I want to just give you a couple things. Jesus says in Matthew 26, he says, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Watch and pray that you would watch two things, your circumstances and your consequences, that you would watch your circumstances, that you would know yourself, that you would look at your life and your sphere of influence and your season, and you would look at the things that tempt you, that pull you away from God and pull you away from others in your life. You would watch those things. Some of you don't watch. You take your phone to bed, and you never even think about that. And you go to bed, and you're anxious, you're angry, and you never even think about what that's doing for your your heart, for your mind, because you're not watching. Like, watch. If you know, if that's you, if you're driving in the car, and you're only listening to music or only listening to sports radio, if you don't get your mind prepared to lead your family, watch that. Change that. Throw on a Bible app. Listen to scripture. Listen to something else that proclaims God. Listen to safe and fun for the whole family. Every once in a while, right? Just throw that on. Watch yourself. Know your circumstances. If you're always looking for recognition in your job and with your relationships, even right now, you want people to notice you and you're obsessed with that, watch that. Don't give in to that. And then watch the consequences. You need to look down the road. Consider, if I do this, where will I be? And is that a place I want to be? And so if I give in to this depression, what's that going to do to my relationships? If I let my anger rage, what's that going to do to my home life? If I let... Lust control me. Where will that lead? And is that a place you want to be? That you would see down the road, that you wouldn't just see the pleasure, you would see the pain that could come after that pleasure. And you would watch your circumstances, watch your consequences. And then you would pray, as Jesus says, that you would pray that that self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. That as you meet with God, you cede control to him he will strengthen your self-control. Because as some of you hear this, specifically men, we buck against this, don't we? Like, that's legalistic, Tim. That sounds like a checklist. Like, we're about the gospel of grace. I don't want to be self-disciplined. That's not gracious. I just want to let the love of Jesus flow out of my heart and mind into my actions. That should do that naturally, Right? And some of us don't like this. We think it's a checklist. But you need to know that Paul, over and over, in Titus and in his letters to Timothy, he connects discipline and self-control to godliness. There's a goal involved. It's not a checklist when the goal is to become more like Jesus. Do you see that? That you would be self-controlled. And it's not about just not doing things or a life devoid of pleasure. It's about trading in fleeting pleasures for lasting ones. It's about the pleasures of knowing God and fulfilling his purposes for your life. That as you look at the scope of eternity and you look at the opportunities before you, that you would say no to some things for a bigger yes to other things. And you have to do that. You have to be self-controlled. You have to be self-disciplined in order to do that. Otherwise, you will wander, and you will give your time to things that don't matter and to things that will fade. So, man, you need to look at your schedule. You need to look at your relationships. You need to look at your time in the car, your time in the Word. Are you self-controlled? Because if you aren't, there's destruction awaiting you and, and everybody else around you. One of the things you see in chapter 1, go back and read it, is these empty talkers, these false teachers, they're not just hurting themselves. It says they're upsetting whole families. You say, well, how does that happen? Man, you have an incredible influence on everyone around you. Your family, your relationships, your job, be self-controlled. Say no for a bigger yes. See the goal in mind. Verse seven, Paul addresses Titus just briefly. He says, be a model of good works and your teaching show integrity. The importance of integrity and influence as a leader. Again, we talked about that earlier. Verse eight, why, why is that important? So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And so Paul is challenging Titus to say there's a link between your belief and your behavior as a leader and that you should set the tone for that. He goes back to that theme. And then in verse 9, he addresses bond servants or slaves, depending on your translation. We've, we've addressed this before, but just briefly, the biggest question most of us have when we see slavery in the Bible is, why does God tell slaves how to be better slaves or servants and not redeem them or rescue them out of it? And so maybe you've thought that before. Like, I see in a few places, God addresses slaves or servants. Why is that there? Why doesn't he just rescue them out of this, and and part of the reason is some of the things you just need to to know about slavery and servants at that time. One is this, slavery was different than it is now. Um, It was usually for a specific amount of time, it was usually to pay off a debt, that doesn't mean it was okay, but you just need to know what you think of as slavery today is different from what they experienced in that time. It was possible for a servant to own property, achieve social advancement, even be released or purchased their freedom so it's different i'm not saying it's good but it's different some of you think why didn't he rescue again why didn't he overthrow this but what you see in the life of jesus is that as jesus comes he's the messiah who comes to reign and to rule a lot of people are wondering like when are you going to set up that political kingdom when are you going to overthrow rome and what jesus does over and over he says that's not my mission that's not what i'm going to do i'm going to set up an eternal kingdom. I'm going to change hearts, and out of that, we're going to change lives, and we're going to change the world. And so what Paul is doing is instructing servants to change the way they react, change the way they live under their masters, under their authority. And he's calling them to something really radical, and what we do typically is we just relate that to employer and employee. It really doesn't capture it well enough. Because what they experienced in that day to step out and to treat their masters this way and to to live differently according to the gospel was a radical thing. So I don't want to go there too quickly, but we, we have to go there a little bit to relate it of how does this look for us? How can you do good even when it's difficult? At your job, how are you doing the minimum required or working in such a way that you're just... Plowing the line and plowing ahead. How can you show good faith at your job? Show that you're trusted and valued by your employer, as it talks about in these verses. And so listen, I know some of you struggle with your job, finding meaning, significance. So many times we, as men specifically, but women do this too, we get lost in the perceived significance of a task or a job. And we miss the eternal significance of being faithful in that task. And so as as you look at your job and who is authority over you, some of you don't like your jobs. Some of you feel like, is what I'm doing really that important? You need to know that faithfulness in the midst of that task is. That as we look at the scope of eternity, as we as Christians live differently than the world, that it's not at the end, well done, my good and famous servant. It's not that. It's not, again, well done, my good and fruitful servant. Right? It's not that either. What is it? Well done, my good, say it with me, and faithful servant. That, that you want to show good faith. You want to show you can be trusted and valued in whatever job you're in. So many times we're quick to just hop out of one job, get into another one, hope it fulfills us. And Paul is saying, right where you are, be faithful. I remember talking to a pastor friend of mine one time, and and he just said this. He said, I was struggling with our church and church size and everything like that and just feeling inadequate in my job, like I haven't gotten the book deal yet. I haven't written any good blogs lately, Like, and I'm just starting to feel that pressure. And he was talking to another pastor who was more seasoned and an older man with dignity, and that guy just told him, he said, what if the goal was just to finish? Because a lot of guys don't do that. Think about in your life, what if the goal was to finish, to finish well, to be faithful right where you are, to do good, even in the midst of difficulty? That's what Paul is calling us to, And, and the reason it matters, verse 10, again, belief and behavior, is when you live this way, look at the verse, you adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul is saying when you live this way, you make the truth of God look beautiful, Listen, if we want our beliefs to be more contagious, then our behavior has to be more convincing. That if, if we want people to adorn, to see God's word as beautiful, that our behavior has to change. That we need to live lives in accordance with sound doctrine, in accordance with God's word. And so, as we think about what that looks like, I know many of you, as you look at this long list, you're overwhelmed. You're thinking, hey, steadfastness, submission, self control, that's a lot. Like, I don't know if I can just do that. Well, you need to know this doesn't happen in a vacuum. This happens in community. There's a reason in Titus chapter 2 that he talks about older men, younger men, older women, younger men. That there should be intergenerational discipleship. That there should be people rubbing shoulders with other people helping them do these things, right? Where does that happen? Where could that kind of thing happen? the church right but as I look across this room I see some older men I'm not going to point but I see some older men I see some older women I see some younger women I see some married people I see some people with kids I see some people that your kids are adults now I see some singles I see a couple students that are here for the summer there's a wide range of people Paul addresses all of you And he assumes that how you are living is seen by each other and is seen by an onlooking world. That happens in the church. That's the beautiful thing about the church. And so you don't have to live all this out in a vacuum. You can do so in community. And so our big application for today is going to be this. I want you guys to start the conversation. I talk about all the time, like find an older man, find a younger woman, find a a peer, whatever the case may be, find somebody who's six months older than you, younger than you, but's been a Christian for longer, just find somebody, ask them to go to coffee, right after this go to lunch, like I say that all the time, and some of you do that, but some of you are still holding onto your seat very tightly, right? And so we're just going to change that right now, we're going to take a step in that direction to start the conversation, and we're going to do an old-fashioned meet and greet, I usually do this at the beginning of the service. We're a new church, Phoenix Bible Church. We're going to do things a little bit differently, right? We're going to do this at the end of the sermon. And so I'm going to ask the band for you guys to come back up. They're going to play a little bit. And here's what I want you to do. You can see each other now, right? And so it only seems fitting that we should talk to one another, right? It only seems fitting that we should look down the row and say hello and talk to one another. So I want you to take some time. They're going to play a little bit. And you guys are just going to turn Ask somebody what their name is, ask somebody where they live in Phoenix, how they found out about Phoenix Bible Church, and I want you to start a conversation where we can grow in this and live this out in community. And so we're going to do that now. And so take a moment, turn to the people next to you, and talk to them. All right, well, you uh, you guys really got into the talking more than I thought you would. Let's, uh, let's continue that conversation out, out outside church after the service uh, and we're gonna pray and we're gonna sing songs to Jesus. These conversations you just started, don't let that be the end of it. Continue them after we leave here. Uh, I had to take a picture to, to, to capture this moment, right? We have our lights and you guys are talking. Those are two things that don't always happen. And so we captured it and I hope it was helpful for you to start this conversation of what it looks like to live out the gospel of Jesus and connect belief and behavior. Let's pray and let's sing. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to gather with these men and women who are different and who are similar in many ways. And I thank you for the opportunity that you have brought us here, that sovereignly, God, you have placed us here, that we could be in other cities, that we could be in other churches, That we could be in other rooms, but you have each one of these people in this room to learn about you, to sing to you, and to connect with one another. God, may Phoenix Bible be a place where we don't just consume a performance, but we connect with God and people. And God, may this be the beginning of that, and may we seek to live out these uh, behaviors and characteristics that you have called us to, older men, younger men, older women, younger women. God, that you would show us and empower us how to live this out. That we would think about us as we leave. We would think about us and collectively us, the church, how we can come together and model Jesus to a world who desperately needs it. God, I pray that as we sing, that we wouldn't think about all the ways we don't measure up. God, if we we do, we would confess and repent. That we would also, though, celebrate the way you have done all these things perfectly that you lived a life that we could never live. You died a death that we deserved, and you rose again in victory, and we get to sing about that. You have a vision for our life, and God, help us to sing about that now. Amen.